Today's message is going to be from the book of James, but before we get into that, let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We understand that without your power, without your working, without your sending of the Holy Spirit, all that is said, all that is heard will be in vain. Lord, we come to you and we pray that you would feed our souls, that we would hear from you, that we would see you, God, your glory and who you are and how much you love us and what you have done for us. And may we learn, God, today from your word. Jesus, we ask this in all in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if we can get that first slide going. What are these? What are these, church? Warning labels, right? Warning labels. Uh, and we have them everywhere, right? We have them all over the place, uh, all on all kinds of tools and weapons. My favorite warning label is this next one right here. Uh, maybe some of you have seen this one before. So caution, the sign has sharp edges, right? Be careful around those signs, right? They're very sharp. Um, but today's message... is going to be about the tongue, which is the most dangerous tool in the world. And yet it does not come with a warning label. Every newborn has one of these, and they don't come with any warning labels. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Let's think about this concept of words just, just for a minute. We celebrate a person's first words, right? When a little child says the first word, was it mama, was it daddy, right? What, what did the child say, right? We, 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 we do bets, right, on what she or he will say first. We remember a person's last words that they said before they pass on. All the most powerful people in this world are not those who are, you know, just physically strong or maybe good at some kind of skill or sports, but it is specifically those people that are very good with their words, those who can communicate effectively. You see, words are a distinctly human feature, are they not? It is a gift that God has bestowed upon us as his image bearers, those who carry his image. And interestingly enough, even Jesus himself is revealed to us as the word, right? John 1.1, 1, 1, and in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. Words, they originate from and they enter into the mind. Words are the ways that we, of how we exchange meaning and thoughts, right? It's purely a human thing. Words are almost like a vessel into which we put meaning and we transport that meaning to others through our words. And meaning changes everything, does it not? Imagine one day you wake up in the hospital, and your leg is broken, and you have no idea why it's broken. And then they say, oh, he's awake or she's awake. What, what, what happened? What happened? You'll never believe it. Now imagine right after that, they explain to you that you actually broke your leg, saving somebody's life, but you don't remember because of the trauma, the damage. 
All of a sudden, that leg went from a pain and a burden. It just turned into a, 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 a token, a, a, a medal, right? A reward to show your bravery. And nothing changed about your leg, right? They didn't give you more, you know, anesthetic, more morphine. They just explained to you what happened. Now, let's say an animal breaks their leg. It doesn't matter what it was doing as it broke its leg, saving somebody's life. You can talk to it till you're blue in the face. It will never understand the meaning behind its actions. All it will feel is that pain. You see, church, words are everything. And James had a lot to say about our tongue or the tool which creates words. So let's read together. If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 3, and we'll read the first 12 verses. James chapter 3, and we'll read the first 12 verses. The apostle says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pirate, uh, pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. We see here that the Apostle James, he gives us six very negative descriptions of the tongue. And each of them highlight a different aspect of our communication. It's almost like he's looking right at a diamond from different angles. And I'm certain that God's intention in delivering these words to us by the Holy Spirit is not to just condemn us and cast us down. But it's to put a mirror before us, to help us see ourselves how he sees us when our tongues are unrestrained in hope that we will hear and that we will be more conformed to the image of his most perfect son, Jesus Christ. The observations about the tongue are very negative, but I'm sure the intention is positive. So that being said, there's six observations. The first one is one. If you're taking notes, it's the uncontrollable tongue. 
Let's read verse 2 again. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Church, the tongue, let's be honest, right? It's so difficult to control our tongue that James says if you can learn how to control your tongue, you can control the rest of your body. You can control everything else. In fact, he says if you can control your tongue, you are perfect. That's the word he uses. You are complete. You're whole. You've accomplished it, right? It's like the highest level, the highest degree of accomplishment. It's the ultimate challenge. It's the defeating the supervillain, right? If you can tame the tongue, you can tame everything else. And he makes this point by giving us two images, bits and rudders. Verse 3, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Right? Bits and rudders, they're very tiny. Right? A bit is just this little thing we put into the horse's mouth, and using that, we can control this huge, heavy, strong animal. Rudders, right? They're tiny. They're sitting on the back of the ship. But they can control the entire ship, which is driven by such strong winds. If you want a modern-day analogy, just think of a a loaded semi-truck, right? It's enormous, thousands and thousands of pounds, and yet it's controlled by just a steering wheel, right? Wherever he wants, just one little steering wheel. Mark Twain once said, if I need to eat a frog on a particular day, it's going to be the first thing I do. If I need to eat two frogs on that day, I'm going to eat the bigger one first. Now, the wisdom that Mark Twain was communicating is he's saying, do the hardest thing first, right? And then everything else will be easy. You do the very hardest thing first, and then the rest of your day will be downhill. It will be a breeze. The same applies to our tongue. If we can learn to control our speech Controlling everything else will be a breeze. Controlling all of our other actions is easy in comparison to controlling the uncontrollable tongue. Notice, notice this in our lives. Whenever we are in a bad place, right? You know, things are going bad and we start doing bad things. Before we do those bad things that we know are wrong, if you rewind and you observe yourself, you'll notice that we sin first with our mouth, right? Just my, And it might be unnoticeable. Like maybe it's just grumbling under our breath, right? Or maybe it's gossiping or maybe it's complaining or saying mean things or lying or whatever it is, boasting, right? It always starts with our words first and sometimes action follows, sometimes it doesn't, right? But it starts with our mouth, If we can control our words, we can control our actions. Two, we see that the tongue is called the boastful tongue. If we can go to the next slide, verse 5. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Right? What... James, he loves to highlight irony, right? He's highlighting the irony. He says, the tongue, it's so small. 
In, think about your whole body proportionally. It's tiny. It doesn't weigh that much. And yet it's the one that's boasting of all these great things and talking about how great it is. It's like the irony of the, the smaller the dog, the more aggressive it is, right? The more it, you know, it's, it's, it's putting up a front. But isn't boasting exactly that? Boasting is making ourselves look bigger and better than we really are. And so any form of boasting is ironic, church, because all of it is false. We, when we boast, we try to impress people with something that's false or maybe just even incomplete, right? We don't show all sides of ourselves. We just show just one little slice of ourselves and we let people's imaginations fill in the blanks. In our favor. And yet we're still tempted to do it. As ironic as it is, we're still tempted to do it because it helps, let's be honest, at least in the short term, have people treat us better, right? And yet, rather than puffing ourselves up, Jesus says that we should do the complete opposite. Luke 14, 8 says, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place, because all the other spots are taken. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, you see, boasting, making ourselves look better than we really are, is like living above our means, right? It's like spending more money than we earn. Imagine you get the credit card, right? And you go and you just start maxing, you start spending it, spending it. It feels really good in the moment, right? You're, you're, you're getting all these things that you normally wouldn't buy for yourself. You're buying things for your friends, all these gifts. Everyone's liking you. It's great for the moment until you max it out and you can't use it anymore. And then the bill comes, right? And then we're suffocating in the debt that we have accumulated for ourselves we all understand it's better to live below our means, to spend less than we make so that we would have money left over in case some emergency would come. And so boasting is like buying things on credit, things we cannot afford. One day, the bill will come. It's, it's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And there will be interest that will accumulate the more time passes and we will end up losing more than we gained initially. And it is with our tongue that we love to so boast. The boasting tongue. Point number three, we see here in James describing the overly powerful tongue. Verse 5 says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. 
And here, what, what James is communicating is that the tongue is disproportionately powerful for its size, right? It's very small, and yet it can be so destructive. Who was here in California during 2020? Raise a hands, church. Most of us, right? Besides COVID, do you remember what another big thing about 2020 was? The fires, right? Remember sitting outside here and just smoky, and you just feel like your lungs are getting clogged, and, and it's just, it, it was horrible, was it not? Well, we all know that those fires, they don't get started by, you know, some bomb that got dropped in our forest. All it takes is one match. One match and the whole state, the whole West Coast gets plagued with this smoke for months and months and months. Millions of people suffering, right? I mean, we didn't lose that much, but, but it wasn't pleasant. Millions of acres of forest burning down, billions of dollars spent on damage, on, on, on stopping the fire. All it takes is one single match, a match that any of us can go across the street to any store and we can buy a hundred of them for a couple of bucks. It's just a few cents. That's all it takes. And then we can have another fire just like that. Same thing is with our tongues. We all have this tongue, right? It's sitting here. And it's so easy to talk. It's so easy to say something, to say something quick. It's so normal, so natural. We want to say things, right? And yet, so much destruction can come about as a result of our tongues. Frederick Nietzsche once said, All I need is a sheet of paper and something to write with, and then I can turn the world upside down. Church, let me ask you this. How many times has someone gossiped about us and caused so much pain and damage? How many times has someone said some careless words, just quick jab, that caused us to lose our peace for, for a day, maybe multiple days? How many times has someone said something to us that made us feel utterly worthless, small, or manipulated us with their words, ruined our day, frustrated us, traumatized us with their words, made fun of us, attacked us, spoke evil, belittled, judged, showed how smart they were, or better than they are, better that they are than us, exalted themselves over us, got back at us, lied to us, threatened, withheld, ignored. It hurts, doesn't it? And it's just words, right? A punch in the nose, just one punch in the nose or in the mouth would hurt less and for not as long as some of the things that people have told us before in our lives. Is it not true? And yet, how many times have we done the same exact thing that people have done to us? How many times have we just shot out careless words, said mean things, not caring about the consequences of what happens to that other person? Just with one phrase, completely ruined somebody's day, week, month, maybe longer. The tongue is overly powerful, and we must handle it with care. 
related to this point is point number four. It's the devastating tongue. Verse six says, and the tongue is a fire. And verse eight, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Do we realize the devastatingly destructive power that each of us holds over one another? It's true. God has given this power to us over one another, church. And we can't opt out, right? We we can't just say, well, I'm just, you know, like we can try to be the better person and try to rise above it and try to recover quickly, but we can't just be completely immune to one another's words. It's like the image of everybody carrying around a loaded gun, right? Just imagine everyone in this room just always walking around with a loaded gun, right? And all it takes is just one pull of the finger. That's it. That's all it takes to unleash this deadly power. Or, or even worse, we're walking around with little buttons to launch a mini nuke at one another. But that's how it is with our tongues. This is the power that all of us carry in our mouths. And here's the problem. Not only is it powerful, but also when we unleash that power, we can't stop it, right? You can't unsee the things you see. You can't unsay the things you said. It, it, just like the small, innocent match that lights the tree on fire in a dry forest. Yes, the, the match is small. Yes, it's weak. It's so tiny. It's so innocent. But once the fire breaks out, Once the tree catches fire, you can't stop it on your own anymore, right? Once you've pulled the trigger and the bullet flies out, you can't put the bullet back into the gun. There are often times lasting and irreversible effects of destruction that our tongues bring. So are we handling our tongues with the proper care. And who do we hurt most often with our words? Is it the people far away from us? Is it the people that are our acquaintances? Or, are the peop- or is it the people that are closest to us? The ones that are nearest and dearest to us? I think we know the answer to that. Do we realize what our words can do if we're not watchful? Verse 6 also says that The tongue, it's staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. James says that the tongue, it affects our entire life. And it powerfully affects the lives of the people around us. And it isn't just a part of our lives or the lives of the people around us that are stained. It's everything. Everything is stained. It says all of life. And from birth to death, childhood, teen years, adulthood, old age, right? Everyone is affected by the tongue, right? It's not just something we grow out of and we, we never have a problem with. We see everybody struggles with this, right? People of all ages are getting hurt and hurting one another. Is it not true that some of the most important turns most important directional changes in our lives, they come about as a direct result of the things that people say to us. Is it not true? What do we tell people when someone said something hurtful or, or bad? 
and we come to a close one to talk about it. Oh, you won't believe what he said, or you won't believe what she said, right? It's all about one another's words, Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Church, there is so much at stake because of our tongues. Our tongues will either, one, they will either bring life, nourishment, joy, peace, flourishing to ourselves and to the people around us, or our tongues will bring death, destruction, dismay, disorder, difficulty. Church, imagine your life is a trail, right? You're walking through a trail, a path through the field or through, through a forest, and if, if all of us were to turn around and look back at the path that we have walked, what would we see? Is everything behind me black from the death and the fire that my tongue has been continually spreading everywhere I go? Or is everything flourishing because I watered it? With my words, I brought life and nourishment to the people around me. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Point number five, the hellish tongue. Verse six, it reveals the hidden source of all this destruction, right? The tongue is a world of unrighteousness set on fire by hell. So all this destruction that comes about as a result of our words is actually found in it from hell, right? Hell is what sets this all on fire. Ultimately, all these fires that our words cause in the lives of other people, all these problems and fights and bickering, it finds its root source in demonic activity. And actually, verse 15, just down a couple of verses in that same exact chapter, James starts saying that, you know, he starts comparing earthly wisdom with godly wisdom, and he says that earthly wisdom is actually demonic. So James is, 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 is trying to tell us, like, look, don't be fooled. There's something deeper going on. And I understand that for us as 21st century educated and scientific people with smartphones and Wikipedia and the internet, it just sounds a little over the top, right? Like set on fire by hell. You're, you're being dramatic, James. But the word of God unashamedly, without apology, affirms the existence of an arch enemy, right? Who hates God. He hates people who are God's image bearers. And this enemy is very powerful, and he has other fallen angels that have followed him that are trying to do his work in this world. The evil and dark spirits. And there's a reason why God does not allow us to perceive them, and I'm sure it's a good reason. But the Bible nevertheless affirms that they are real, that they are active, that they are working. And so... James draws a parallel between the hell of fire, the destruction, the pain, the misery of hell, and the fire that our words cause. 
He's saying that the source of all this pain that we experience from our words here on earth, the source, the thing that's actually fueling all this is hell. It's the evil spiritual forces at work. And in a sense, the pain that we experience as we hurt one another is a tiny little preview of what awaits those who are going to be in hell. And if the source of this fire is hell, and we don't control our tongues, but we let our tongues control us, we are participating in the spreading of this hell here on earth. We become useful tools in the hands of the enemy. So may the Lord protect us and help us not to be manipulated in such ways. And the last point is number six, the double tongue, the double tongue. Verse 9 says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Here, again, James is pointing out another irony. And his point is that the tongue is very bad in a unique way. It's unique in its doubleness, right? The one thing worse than something being consistently bad is something being inconsistently bad, right? When something's consistently bad, you can kind of work around it, right? You, you kind of know what to expect. You, you know, you've got good expectations, and you just drive around it. Just imagine like a road, right? Like if you know this one path home is always bad, you're good, right? You're just going to avoid that path. Now imagine there's a good road, but then every now and then it just forms ice, right? And you, you don't know when it forms that ice, and you're driving thinking everything's good, and then all of a sudden you start skidding, right? The one thing worse than consistently bad is inconsistently bad, and James highlights the contradiction in the way we use our tongues, and he says it's so bad that we actually don't see this doubleness even occur in nature. He says even nature doesn't do this. We, on one hand, we bless God, and then we curse with the same tongue. We curse those who are made in his likeness. We curse God's representatives here on earth, right? And that is, that's evil. It's like, imagine someone comes over to your house. You know, they come over to visit you, and they, you start chatting with them, and you're hanging out, and maybe you're drinking some coffee or tea together, and they start telling you about how much they just, they really respect you. They really admire who you are. They look up to you, right? All these things. And then five minutes later, they start just talking trash about one of your close relatives or your friends or your child, Right? How would you feel in that moment? Would you like still be sitting there happy about all the things, the good things they said about you and just compartmentalize that? And then this thing about your close friend or relative, right? That's not how we're going to experience that, right? We're going to say, you can't do that, right? All those nice words that you just told me about me, like they become meaningless, when you are talking trash about someone who is close to me, someone who is like me. 
And the same exact thing happens here. We, if we speak evil and we curse those who carry the image of God, we think God takes no offense at that. You think God takes no offense at that church? Even if, and they are, those image bearers are fallen and sinful. They are. James knows that we all sin in many ways. All of us still carry dignity that was not taken away after the fall of man. That person might not do anything good to deserve respect. But because of our fear of God... We should still treat all people, I don't care who they are, I don't care what they've done, with respect because they still carry the image of God himself. The evil things we say about people taint the good things we say about God. And it's not enough to just say lots of good things to kind of outweigh the evil things that we say. It's not a scale, right? Our words are not a scale, as long as there's more good words than bad words. It's like a meal, right? Imagine your favorite dish. You sit down at home, you've prepared it, you spent hours, or maybe you went to your favorite restaurant, you've got your favorite dish, and then somebody just comes up, takes their shoes, and just goes, doof, 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 just right above your meal, and all the dirt and dust falls on, right? Or worse, like some, you know, poison splashes onto it. Are you still going to eat the meal? Right? It's just a little bit of dirt, it's just a little bit of poison, like, enjoy it, right? No, it ruins the whole thing. Ecclesiastes 10.1 says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. I understand that none of us will ever get this perfect. James knew that. That's why he said, right, we all stumble in many ways. But we must understand that we must apply ourselves not just to say lots of good things, but to avoid speaking evil. Just to avoid, just, just avoid speaking evil about towards any person. Because everyone is made in the image of God. God takes offense anytime we offend any of his image bearers. And I know it's most tempting to speak evil of those who are not like us, who are not like me, right? For example, those who don't agree with me politically, right? And, and I, can, I can explain to you exactly why it's wrong, why they believe the things they believe and the things that they do that are wrong and sinful and all of these things, but that does not give me now permission to speak evil of God's image bearers. I disagree with so many of the current president's decisions, and yet he is still made in the image of God. He is. Just as much as I am. No matter how much he opposes God with his decisions, he still carries the image of God. And like James says, these things ought not to be so. The last thing I want to do for my seventh point is I want to end with Jesus but Jesus, right? This is, it just seems like an overwhelmingly negative message, but I want to give us hope. I want to give us a path forward. First Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I just want to point out a few amazing things. Notice all the different texts that deal with the mouth, the tongue, right? There was no deceit found in his mouth. He did not revile or speak evil, and he didn't threaten. In fact, in this verse, in these verses, we don't see any non-tongue actions, actually, right? There is nothing else. It doesn't say that, you know, he, he, and, you know, he didn't get revenge, right? It doesn't say that, and he didn't summon 12 legions of angels, right, or, or, or push anybody back. It doesn't say any of those things. It only uses words that concern the mouth, the tongue. And I think the reason why Peter chose to only use words that relate to the tongue, the mouth, is again because this 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 strong connection between that first come the words, then come the actions. And the point he's trying to highlight is that if Jesus didn't even sin with his words, then you can bet all your money that he did not sin with his actions. And the question, though, is how was he able to do it, right? That's the most interesting question. How can I follow in his footsteps, in his example? And the secret is there. He continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Church, the secret, the secret to taming the tongue is trusting God. Even in the worst of circumstances, and Jesus did exactly that to leave an example for us, for us to imitate, right? Not just for us to look and say, wow, Jesus, that's so great. I'm so glad you did that on my behalf. He did. He fulfilled all righteousness. But he also left us an example to imitate, that we must now get up and follow after him and do like he has done You see, when our kids are irritating us, when our spouse is getting under our skin, when our friends and our coworkers are making us angry and mad and and just making me ticked off, right? Or when we feel insecure or we feel the need to boast a little and just make myself a little look a little bit better. Or when we feel the pressure to join in with the gossip, right? Because I don't want to stand out, right? I want to fit in. Church, it's trusting God. Trusting God is what will allow us not to sin with our tongues in that moment. This whole sermon has been about the tongue. But what is the source of the tongue, church? What's the source of the tongue? The heart, right? Jesus says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if our heart is trusting in God, if our heart is abounding in trust, flowing with trust, we will not sin with our mouths. If there's one thing that you're going to remember from this message, let it be this, that when we sin with our mouths, we are not trusting God. 
When we sin with our mouths, we are not trusting God. There is a very strong connection between not trusting God and sinning with our mouths. So let us catch ourselves on that. Let us remember when, when we start hearing, what, what am I saying? Why am I saying it in this kind of tone? Why am I doing this? Let that be a reminder, a cue for us to look into our heart and, 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 and examine it and say, what, wait, wait. Am I trusting God right now? Am I clinging to God and his goodness? Am I believing his promises, his power, his love, his goodness? Am I trusting that right now? And if we're sitting with our mouth, I bet you the answer is no, we're not. When we're angry, when we're insecure, when we're frustrated, let us remember to look inward and to trust God. You see, trying to control our words without trusting God is like having a hole in your boat, right? Imagine you're out at sea and you've got a hole in your boat and it's, and it's just flooding and flooding. And so you decide to take the bucket and you try to take the water out, right? It's going to work for a little bit, but you're going to run out of energy, right? We can only go for so long. We can only use the bucket for so long until we run out of energy and the boat completely fills up with water. It's only a matter of time. What we have to do first is we have to plug the hole. We have to fix it. And then we use the bucket to remove the remaining water. Since we are sinful and fallen people, we will never have enough self-control and discipline in our own selves to control our words. What we need to do is we need that pressure inside of us. We need it to be safely released, right? And trusting God is the safe way to release that pressure. If something bad happens, give it to God. Release it to God. Entrust it into his hands and the pressure will subside. It will be released. But if that pressure never gets released, we can, we can hold it down, we can hold it down, but it's only a matter of time until it will just blow up. As I call the band up, I want to talk about how do we truly trust God? How do we trust him in a way that produces actual change in our tongues, in the way we use our tongues? The next two verses in 1 Peter 2 will give us that answer. Verses 24 and 25 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Church friends, we must first trust him with our entire life. And then we can begin to trust him in our moments of temptation. With Jesus, friend, it is all or nothing. You can't have any in-betweens. He's not a genie that just serves and satisfies all our wishes and desires. He can help us. But first, we must surrender to him everything. He is the one that took our sins, paid the price for them on the cross on our behalf. We can never be good enough on our own. We don't have the strength to be good enough. He died on the cross so we could die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds, we have been healed. We were lost. And through the good news, we return to the good shepherd. Friend, if you are lost, come to Jesus. He's waiting for you. He will pull you through. Follow his voice. Don't wait. The word of God says today is the day of salvation. Today. That's, that's the only day we have. We don't have tomorrow. We don't have yesterday. It's done and sealed. All we have is today. And if Jesus is calling you, come to him. Cry out to him and he will save you. He gave his life for you, for me. He loves us. And he doesn't want us to live apart from him. A life of being hurt and hurting others with our tongues. So I urge you, come to him today. And for those of us that have trusted in Christ already, may we continue to trust in him moment by moment. As we go through the challenges and the temptations of life, through all the different circumstances, through all the disappointments and unmet expectations, may we trust in him. Just like Jesus trusted in the Father, following his example. May our tongues become tools of blessing and nourishment and flourishing, life-giving to the people around us instead of the death and destruction that is set on fire by hell. Let's stand. And I'm going to give all of us a minute of response time to think and to pray of what the Holy Spirit maybe is putting on your heart right now. How has my tongue been? Am I giving life? Am I giving nourishment? Or am I just bringing death to those around me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We come together to worship you for setting that example for us. Lord, I pray for anyone who has not yet come to know you, for anyone who has not yet turned from their sin and surrendered to you, that they would do so today, that they would not wait or linger, but that they would experience that freedom of trusting you, of loving you, God, and that their tongues would become instruments of blessing in the lives of others and their own lives, God. And I pray for all of us, God, may we be blessings to those around us with our words. May I, Lord, may I with my tongue be a blessing to those around me, Lord. Lord, we thank you. We worship you. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.